From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we're speaking with Chris Bradley, a senior partner in our Sydney office and one of the authors of the recent book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. In our two earlier podcasts, Chris and his co-authors, Sven Smith and Martin Hurt, talked about the power curve of economic profit that they developed, which maps the performance of the world's largest companies and shows how well or how poorly their strategies are at beating the market. We also heard about the most important moves companies can make to climb that power curve. Today, we'd like to share excerpts from a presentation Chris gave at our Global Business Leaders Forum in New York earlier this year. Chris will take us through some of the practical changes companies can make to their strategic planning process to ensure they can unlock these bold moves. First, here's Chris on how he and his co-authors approach the challenges faced by executive teams in the strategy room. Now, business books are notoriously boring, and I don't know if ours is non-boring, but we tried to make it as non-boring as possible. But to make the story interesting, uh, you need a villain. The villain's the thing that gets in the way of you achieving your goal. So your goal is to scale the power curve and make big moves to beat the odds. If you're in a perpetual state of kind of low returns, you've got to make big moves. What is it that gets in the way? It's called the social side of strategy. And this villain's a funny one. Rather than causing big catastrophes, it usually causes inertia. Like the enemy is that your companies move slower than the markets they're in. So you start your strategy season with really high hopes. You've got great intentions. You're going to make the big moves. You're going to get on top of the trends. Um, But when you get to the strategy room, you come in and strategy room's crowded with all sorts of stuff. There's negotiations. There's egos, there's last year's plans that I kind of got to explain and be a little bit consistent with. There's other people, I want to look good. There's so much else going on than just strategy. And what ends up happening is you get this situation where you're just reading your own mail the whole time and you can't see out the windows anymore because the strategy room's too full. So what we did in this book was kind of end it with a manifesto for how you might manage your companies differently and hopefully inspire you to make some real shifts to put your strategy into high gear. Chris went on to explain how the average company has an 8% chance of moving up the power curve to the top quintile of performers, who are capturing almost all of the economic profit. There are five big moves companies can make to reach the top. Here's Chris again speaking about them. The first one is programmatic M&A, a steady diet of deals, but no one deal big enough to give you indigestion. Resource reallocation, so moving over a 10-year period, 60% of your capex or more from old uses to new uses. So that's 6% per year, resource reallocation. Average company, 2 to 3% per year. So think of it like this. How do I double or triple the rate at which resources are moving in my company? Then there's investment, quite obviously. Um, if you invest more, you'll probably go up the power curve as long. This, this is the one exception to the rule that big moves actually reduce risk. CapEx is one where you want to be a bit laser focused. If you blow a lot of CapEx in a declining industry, you're more likely to go down the curve. But if you spend 1.7 the CapEx to sales ratio versus your industry, you'll have more odds of going up the curve. 
Uh, productivity can be strategic if you sustain it for a long period of time, so it's not the one-off cutting, but a sustained ability to be better than 70% of companies at productivity. You, that'll help you go up the curve. And then finally, differentiations. Um, by the way, everyone has these on their list, so don't fool yourself, though. Your moves have to be big, and you have to actually calibrate are my moves bigger than the competition? Second point, it's all very well to put up those big moves and say you've got to be big and bold, but it's not easy. There's one really obvious reason why it's not easy. That is, you're in a competitive world. Like These moves have to be big relative to the competition, and you've got to do something bigger and better than, than what they do. Next, Chris addressed the eight practical shifts that he proposed companies should make to unlock bigger and bolder moves. Okay, so the first point, planning is a really important thing to do. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily important to know what's got to happen next month, what I expect, what resources need to move, uh, what initiatives I have to do. But the problem is that's just a different mode of thinking than strategy. As soon as you put strategy and planning together, I tell you, planning will always win. The shift we suggest making is go from kind of this annual planning ritual to strategy as a journey. Let me make that really practical. You need a two-track process. You need an absolutely efficient way of doing your plans. That's really important. Every year, making sure the budget lines up. But you need a parallel track to do strategy in a, in a completely different timing. So by the time you come to planning, you should have a prepared... You should already have your strategy by the time you come to planning. What I'm going to do here is bring these to life a bit through what we call micro-practices. So if you want to re-engineer the way a company works, you can kind of talk in themes and theories... But actually, it tends to be lots of small things that you do differently, lots of small micro-practice adjustments. Lots of companies outside of their normal strategy planning season, a very practical set of regular meetings, suppose every eight weeks, where there's just an evolving agenda of big strategic topics and a, a stimulating discussion every eight weeks about them to make big strategic decisions. That's easy. That's a micro-practice. Very, very rare, though. Very, very rare. So you get in a discipline and a cadence of strategic conversations. But increasingly, we're seeing companies make transformations to a more agile way of working, even outside of the tech space. And when we go and look at these companies, something fascinating happens, because when they go agile, they go, our planning processes actually don't work anymore because we're now in this 90-day cycle. I think agile is a pretty exciting place for us to get inspiration from, because this idea of how do you have a story that updated every 90 days that cascades right down into all of the squads and all of the tribes. So again, the idea is how do I continually go from big goals to little goals in a much more robust way? So strategy is a journey. That's probably the easiest one, so it's a good place to start. The second shift Chris identified was about encouraging the strategy team to debate real alternatives rather than simply seeking to get to yes uh, to the proposal on the table. Strategy plans are often an elaborate management ballet that seem perfectly choreographed to do only one thing, and that's get to a yes. And that's because what do you walk in the room with? A proposal. And if you walk into a room with a proposal, what's a good outcome? Acceptance of your proposal, and usually it's the last page that matters, which is where you're asking for what you need. This is just entirely the wrong place to start the strategy. Actually, what we're saying is you need to debate real alternatives. Let me bring this to life with a bit of research I came across recently about how PE firms made investment decisions. And they, they ran an experiment where they had two rooms going. One room 
evaluated investment decisions one at a time, and the other room evaluated investment decisions comparing two simultaneously. And what they found is that the, there was a 30% difference in decisions. Now, later on, when they kind of did the randomised trial and they mixed it up again, what they found was the two alternative room always made the better decision. So what I'd argue is this whole idea of proposals or the one-off plan introduces a 30% error into what you're doing. See, in the world of getting to a yes, you know, everyone has high market share. You know, famous story was um, Jack Welsh when he took over GE, he said, oh, every business has to be number one or number two in their segments. Now, of course, that happened. By playing the denominator game, everyone's market got really small and they became number one or number two uh, instantly. So what he said is, no, 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 you have to define now your market so that you have less than 10% market share. The reality is most companies don't work like this at all. Most companies are stuck in the world of getting to yes. They're not comparing alternative plans and their strategy is framed more around promises and financial goals more than it is around, around choices. Uh, I'm going to borrow a bit from the behaviour of activists. Trian, for example, will come in with an outside-in white paper. So when's the last time you ask someone for a provocative, completely outside-in perspective? How often are you doing the outside-in white paper to yourself? How do we make dissent part of the culture? How do we create a more outside-in rigorous perspective how do we foster real debate um, and break some of these biases that we have? The book emphasized the importance of making big, bold commitments to those initiatives that can really drive a step change in a company's performance. But it's hard for most companies to move resources around in this way. Chris next addressed some of the ways to get resources moving dynamically toward those businesses with the greatest potential. The harsh reality of the the way we do strategic planning now is there's a pot of money and we're all competing for it. When we do our research on companies going up the power curve, pretty interesting thing we find is that it's not the whole company improving when they go up the power curve. It's usually one or two of their 10 business units that disproportionately goes up the power curve. It's always just a small part of the company that explosively grows. That's all very easy to logically understand but when you're in the room, if you're trying to be one of those winners, you're also creating possibly a lot of losers. And you can see how in the social side of strategy, that really becomes a problem. If you ask 10 BU leaders in the room, which of you is in the bottom five, you'll get a uniformly same answer from every company in the world, which is none of them are in the bottom five. But if you ask them, which is the one business that we probably need to disproportionately back, they usually know that one. They, they do usually know it. So what we want to do is go from peanut butter, which is the enemy, to picking one in tens. And that means we've got to deal with some tough stuff. An example is the, the Dutch semiconductor firm NXP. They've gone from like 2 billion market cap to 25 billion market cap. And at the source of that were just some really tough choices where they moved 70% of the R&D to backing just two of the 13 trajectories they had. To do that, you create 11 losers, right? So how do we get good at creating losers? Or in other words, how do we make winners out of losers? Racket Bankus is a very innovative uh, consumer goods company, but they're also quite innovative for their management practices. And they've taken the concept of granularity, which we've been championing for a really long time, and taken it to the extreme where they're running 200 markets and 100 
six brands. So that's a pretty big matrix. But what's really interesting is they've actually chosen 19 brands in 16 markets and they call those power cells and they get disproportionately more resources. But if you think about the level of visibility that implies over resource allocation is way, way different to what you'd get when you're just rolling up a bunch of BU plans, right? Just order of magnitude difference. But you imagine also just the leadership style is very different because instead of talking to each BU president and accepting their plan as a package deal, you actually have portfolio visibility at a three or four levels down, down the organization. Once you're anchored your strategic plan just on the numbers, you've lost the plot, haven't you? You've lost the plot because now you're negotiating. Um, so what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to go from budgets to moves. And what I mean by that is don't start with what numbers you're going to achieve. Start with what moves you're going to make. The enemy here is the base case. And what the base case is is usually an extrapolation enabled by Excel because when you uh, click on a cell and you get the little crosshair and you drag across, it's really easy just to extrapolate, right? The problem with extrapolating is you've also extrapolated a way that the management team before you was busting to get those results. That's not a base case. And then you lay your strategic initiatives on top, and then usually there's a gap in your waterfall chart to budget that says stretch, right? It doesn't work. What we do instead is we, we say, okay, what's the momentum case of the business? In other words, if you just kept current policies, current capabilities, no new initiative, no new investment, what would actually happen to this business? So some businesses do okay. They're contracted, they've got a lot of tailwind. Uh, most businesses, though, the momentum case will be frightening. If you take your pedal off uh, the metal, uh, most companies are going to fade out pretty fast, right? So if you're a retailer and you stop refurbishing your stores, um, your, your comp sales are going to fall pretty quickly. And when your comp sales fall quickly, that will very, very quickly leverage into your bottom line. So it's frightening, but true though, and that's actually the right basis because then we can calibrate, we can go, okay, if that's my momentum case, how much do I actually need to get to my aspiration and, and what, what's going to get me there? So we're going to focus the discussion on moves. First of all, most important thing is know your business really well. Um, often we think the hard part on strategy is we've got to guess the future and make bold moves. I actually think the hard part on strategy is busting your own myths. The most important question a strategist can ask, why do you make money? I, th I think of it like a road in the Australian outback, your dirt road, and you look in your rear view mirror, it's actually very hard to see where you've been because there's a lot of dust kicked up. In a social side of strategy, this ambiguity about the past is actually really useful because it means when, when I did well, I, it was management prowess, and when things were tough, it was the weather. Because remember, one of the things that's crowding out the strategy room is you want to look good. It's really important to look good. Rather than negotiating a financial promise, put some calibration around your moves. And there's an increasing um, trend of money going towards these firms that operate purely on AI. And they'll actually judge an investment story based on like 30 variables and spit out a probability. I thought that's a good way of also getting the approving budgets out of the way. And then they'll tell you based on um, how much you're investing and what your technology is and what sector it's in, they'll tell you what your budget should be as an outcome, not as an input. Once the company's decided on which moves to make, the next challenge is following through and allocating sufficient resources to those priorities. That's not easy. 
Chris talked about some of the ways to free up those resources. We turn up to work on Monday and there's a rude awakening. While we've all agreed that we're going to move resources to business B and C, we find that on Monday we don't have any resources to move. And the reality is most companies can't responsibly move the kind of resources they need to at the turn of a dime. Remember I mentioned 6% per year. Might not sound like much, but if you start adding up, that's a big move of capital. In a recent survey um, my colleague Tim Collar did, only 30% of managers agreed that their budgets were aligned with the three to five year plan. So you're getting this big dissonance. So what we're talking about here is how do you create liquid resources? I think if you want to really drive strategic change in, in your company, you should be a chief liquidity officer. You can't move resources that aren't liquid. Or in other words, how can you reallocate if you don't also deallocate? Um, and here might be a root cause is managers aren't charging opportunity cost. Like I work a lot in retail. I'm always bugging CEOs. You've got to measure your buyers on return on space because otherwise they're never going to give those uh, shelf back to you because if they're measured on sales, they'll always want more space. In your business, I'm sure you can apply the same thing. You're not applying an opportunity cost of resources. So you've all heard, I think, zero-based budgeting, this term, but it's completely unrealistic, right? I can't zero-base my bank branch network tomorrow because it's there. But what about 87%-based budgeting or 93%-based budgeting? In other words, just create a norm where you are going to force contestability over that last bit of resources. You know, a big part of this is just... How do you de-anchor next year's budget being this year's budget? My colleague, Dan Lavallo, he's a professor. He works applying psychology and biases to management topics at an investment bank. He did a simple test by saying if you go through all the investment decisions made at a lower level and you applied the CEO's risk tolerance to those decisions rather than the more junior decision maker, they would have uh, had a 32% better outcome. So there's kind of this tax of risk aversion. It kind of makes sense, right? If you think the CEO or you sitting where you are, you're pretty diversified. Sitting underneath you and your portfolio, there's probably 20 or 30 bets that are happening that, you know, you can afford a few fails. But what you're asking people to do in your organisations is to take undiversified risk and then get killed on their KPIs when they don't hit the numbers. So it should be little surprise that a lot of the risk is getting edited out of the system. So what are, the, what are the risks that aren't even bubbling up because of that? So the shift I want to encourage here is to go from sandbagging to open risk portfolios. What I'm talking about is how do I go from my strategy being lots of mini hockey sticks that I add together to one big hockey stick that has a lot of risk trade-offs that are made at an enterprise level? That's a simple way of doing it. Don't have cross-subsidisation by creating attacker units that report separately. Super important, by the way, um, in a world of digital disruption, one of the biggest challenges you're going to have, one of the biggest package deals you're going to fight is companies that are trying to protect the earnings core from the, from the growth, right? So one way to undo the package deal is just separate out those different types of businesses. One of my favourite cases, Shibstead, one of the few newspapers in the world that successfully navigated from being a print classifieds business to an online classifieds business. Um, I love cases where you hear the CEO talking about it before you knew it was successful. And he was just like, well, I just believe that if these aren't great businesses, then I shouldn't build them. And if they're great businesses, they will attack my current business. And if my current business can't withstand the attack, well, someone else is going to attack it anyway. 
So he created this idea of, you know, let's, let's encourage cannibalization. Chris then went on to explain how CEOs can promote the mindset that will encourage BU leaders to take the risks that will help the overall company reach its aspiration. We're getting what we incentivize. We're asking our managers to hit their budgets 90% of the time and then criticizing them for being too risk averse. So my question is, how do we actually ask people to do different things? We love scenario analysis at strategy planning time, but who here has ever seen that scenario analysis brought out again at performance review time? So, you, so we've got to re-engineer how we evaluate people, particularly in risky contexts. So rather than you are your numbers or holistic performance view, the other thing we're doing is throwing out balanced scorecards. They, they're, they're not very good because you end up having 20 goals, each worth 5%, and therefore they all don't matter. Unbalanced scorecards much better, which is where the total potential bonus is driven by financial outcomes, but then is subtracted away by how you got there. Right? So actually how you get there will subtract away from that. So there's this idea of an unbalanced scorecard. How do we make sure noble failures get rewarded, um, not just dumb luck? It's interesting in the survey results, by far most companies we surveyed here believe they do penalise noble failures, that they don't recognise the risk someone took in evaluating performance. There's some miswiring in the way the incentive system works that almost little surprise that we're not getting these big moves to happen. Again, coming back to private equity, the innovation of private equity is getting incentives right by basing your incentives more skin in the game over a longer period of time. The final shift Chris discussed is the move from long-range planning to taking the first step. Chris described how you can't finish the strategy meeting until you've figured out what you will do tomorrow to start putting it into action. And you have this last shift with a, a story um, that's relayed by my co-author Sven, and he was in a room of an insurance executive, and they just listened to this truly inspiring presentation about the paperless future of insurance. You looked at it and said, that is just the way the world's going. That's going to be so fantastic. But the CEO asked an inconvenient question. The question was, I love this presentation, but how much paper are we budgeted to use next year? And there was a bit of shuffling of fees, and I think someone had to go out of the room and find the number. And the answer was 5% more paper. So the CEO just said something very clever. He said, I love paperless future, but maybe next year can we do minus 5% paper? Can we start? So, you know, a lot of this is about what's the most radical goal you can set that you can achieve in a six-month period. That's what you should challenge. I want to take the pressure down a bit here. This is hard to do. If you get good at even a few of these shifts, you're straight away putting yourself into kind of some seriously rare territory. There's a reason aside from the fact that markets are competitive and tough, that companies aren't making big moves. It's because the social side of strategy is overwhelming them. Make some of these shifts, think bold, be aspirational, but do it not just by having fancier presentations and nicer sounding initiatives, but really get inside the social side of strategy in your company and maybe make some shifts there and you might unlock those big moves. Thank you all for joining us today inside the Strategy Room. If you want to find out more about the eight shifts, please check out the article on mckinsey.com titled Eight Shifts That Will Take Your Strategy Into a Higher Gear. You'll also find a link in that article to our Eight Shifts Diagnostic, 
where you can learn how well your team is performing on each of the eight shifts and how your organization's performance compares to other companies. And of course, you can find more information in the book, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, People, Probabilities, and Big Moves to Beat the Odds. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance section of the website, where you can also find links to previous episodes. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights in the future, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again soon on another session of Inside the Strategy Room.